You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. One of the uh, most popular television series right now is uh, Better Call Saul. I don't know if you've been watching Better Call Saul. Uh, It's the prequel to Breaking Bad. Uh, The main character in Better Call Saul is is a lawyer named Jimmy McGill. And uh, he later changes his name to Saul Goodman. That's another story. Uh, but anyway, Jimmy is, is trying to make an honest living as, a, as an attorney, uh, but he's always been a con artist at heart. He loves the game of conning people out of, his mon- out of their money, and, and he's really good at it. Uh, in fact, when he was younger, uh, he was sort of a master of, of doing these slip and fall strategies where he would slip and then pretend to be injured and then he would end up collecting money for people. And that's how he got the nickname Slip and Jimmy. Uh, and Slip and Jimmy just knew how to get a fast buck out of people. But later in his life, he's trying to make a change. He's trying to make a turnaround. He's trying to work hard as an attorney. He's trying to be honest and do the right thing. But being a scam artist is just in him. It's just part of who he is. He's very creative. He's a fast talker. He's got great people skills and he uses all those things to con people out of their money. And it's like he likes the game more than he likes the money. And the thing about Jimmy is that he's totally likable. You would just like to hang out with him. And he's also totally untrustworthy. (laughs) He's a swindler. He's a scoundrel. The parable that Jesus tells in our passage today is one of the most confusing parables in the New Testament. And what makes it so confusing is that the hero of the parable is basically Slippin' Jimmy. He's basically that kind of guy. We, we read this parable and we're like, is Jesus actually praising this guy? Like, is Jesus, hold, is Jesus holding up a scoundrel for us as someone we ought, a con artist, as someone we ought to emulate and be like. We're probably familiar with some of the sayings about money that Jesus has in this passage toward the end of the passage, like faithful in a little, also faithful in much. You can't serve God and money. We've heard those before, but we're so thrown off by this weird parable that we're just, we're hard, we have a hard time making the connection to what Jesus is actually saying. This is our third week looking at some of Jesus' teachings about money in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus talks about money a lot. And and the reason he does is because money is a key indicator in our relationship with God. Money points beyond itself to other deeper things going on in our life, like what we love, like what we trust in, like where we find our significance and our security and satisfaction in life. And so money is a huge aspect of discipleship to Jesus. And today, Jesus is talking about money management. In other words, how does following Jesus affect the way I manage my money? Like, if we are new creations in Christ, if we are citizens of the kingdom of God, if we are sons of light, as Jesus calls us here, then that should impact everything about us, including how we deal with our money. Uh, This passage breaks down pretty simply into two parts. First, Jesus tells the parable. And then second, he offers some application points that flow out of the parable. All right, so let's look at those two points. The parable first, 
then the application that Jesus gives. But the, the parable catches everybody off guard, kind of like it catches off, us off guard. Look at it there in Luke 16. Luke 16. Uh, even though this parable has a twist to it, it's not tricky. There's nothing tricky about it. There's no hidden meaning that we've got to uncover. It's not an allegory where you got to figure out, well, who is what in this story? It's just a straightforward story about a money manager who gets fired. Okay, look at verse one. Luke 16, verse one. Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to the rich man that this manager was wasting his possessions. And so the rich man called the manager and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in your, the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. So this guy had been serving as what's called a household manager. He was a steward over this large estate. The rich man had hired this guy and entrusted him with managing all his affairs, his expenditures, his, his money, his business dealings. He had given the manager full authority to act on his behalf. So it was a big job. But the manager proved unreliable. It says he was wasting the rich guy's possessions. He was squandering his money. He was careless and he was probably dishonest. And so the master says to him, you fired, right? <laughs> he lets him go. He's like, turn in your final accounts, give me a final report, and then you're gone. You're out of here. Now, getting fired is a blow for anyone. Uh, but for this guy, it's kind of a double whammy because not only is he out of work, he's also gotten a vote of no confidence in his character and in his abilities from someone who I'm guessing was Ill, really influential in the community. And so he's like, what do I do now? What's, what's my future hold? Look at verse three. The manager, the steward said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking my management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. So not only is he dishonest, it looks like he's also lazy and also proud. He's lazy, he's like, I'm not doing manual labor. That's, that's too hard, I can't be doing that. And he's like, I'm certainly too proud to be begging after I've, I've had this really respectable job, but what am I gonna do? And so he puts his mind to work, he gets his creative juices flowing, and all of a sudden he's like, I got it, I got it. If you've ever seen Better Call Saul, it's like when Slip and Jimmy starts to think about what his next scam is, and you can just see the wheels turning in his head, and then he's like, I got it. I know what I'm gonna do. Verse four, I've decided what to do. I've got it. So that when I'm removed from my management, people may receive me into their houses. What? <laughs> into their homes. He's talking about a plan to make friends. He's saying, I'm gonna use this situation to make friends for myself who in the future when I'm unemployed will help me out, who will have me in their homes. To, maybe I can stay there. Maybe they'll feed me. Maybe they'll hire me to work for them. And so here's what he did. Look at verse five. Here's the plan. Verse five, so he summoned... So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And the guy said, a hundred measures 
of olive oil. And that's like 875 gallons of olive oil. It's about three years wages for a day laborer back then. It's a pretty big debt, 875 gallons. Well, he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So cut your bill in half. Then he said to another, verse seven, and, and how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. That's like 1,100 bushels of wheat, which was like eight years' salary for a day laborer. So this is a bigger debt, 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And one by one, all of the debtors come in, and he's just slashing bills, right, and left. He's slashing their debts. Daryl Bach makes an interesting point about the manager's strategy here. He didn't really need the debtors to declare their debt out loud, to tell them what they owed. He knew what they owed. He had the records of what they owed. But there was a psychological effect in having the people say what they owed out loud so that they could hear it, and then he immediately slashes their debt because then they would all of a sudden in the moment feel the weight of their discount. And they're like, this guy's saving me a lot of money. I really like this guy. He's a good guy. You see what he's doing? Here's one more thing to help us understand what's happening here. It was against the law of Moses. It was a violation of the Mosaic law to lend money for a Jew, to lend money to a fellow Jew and charge interest to make a profit off of them. It was against the law, he couldn't do it. It says it in Exodus, it says it in Leviticus, it says it in Deuteronomy. Don't be making money off your brother by lending at interest. And yet the practice was in those days was to make loans, and this is probably what's happening here, to make loans, but hide the interest by just kind of lumping it in with the overall loan. And so it's possible that the manager sort of hid the interest in that as a commission for himself. It's also possible that the master hid the interest in there as a profit for himself. Either way, it was unethical. And so it's likely that when the manager is discounting the debts here, he's just taking off the interest charge so that the people just have to pay back the principal, which is actually how it should be. But it makes him look like the good guy. And the master can't do anything about it because if the master says, no, you guys owe the full amount, it makes him look like a scumbag for adding interest. So the master's kind of stuck. And he says to the manager, you dog, <laughs> you sly dog, you got me. I gotta hand it to you. That was pretty smart. Look at verse eight. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Not for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness, for his foresight, for his resourcefulness. He used money that wasn't his own to benefit himself. Or as John Piper says, he used his wits to manipulate money to secure a better future for himself. That's shrewdness. And the disciples are listening to Jesus tell this parable and they're just amazed by the twist in this story. And they're like, Jesus is such a great storyteller. They thought the manager was gonna be rebuked for his dishonesty. They thought maybe he'd get punished, maybe get a little jail time for the way he treated money. But instead he gets praised and then Jesus turns it on him. He turns it back on the disciples. Look at the rest of verse eight. The second half of verse eight, Jesus gives the point of the parable. He says, for the sons of this world, this age, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation 
than the sons of light. That's the point. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, here's this secular guy who's wiser in his use of money than you guys are. Like he's employed all his wits, all his creativity, all the worldly wisdom he can muster to secure a better future for himself. And Jesus says, if only the sons of light would put that kind of foresight that kind of creativity, that kind of resourcefulness into how they use their money, only not to benefit themselves, but to benefit God and his kingdom and the people of God and the gospel. See, the sons of light have the perspective of the kingdom of God. That's what we have. We have the perspective of eternity. What if we put our money to work with the same level of shrewdness that the dishonest manager had? This parable is about stewardship. It's about a steward who used someone else's money to secure a better future for himself. What would shrewd stewardship? I was gonna try to combine those into one word, but I thought it'd be too goofy. Shrewdership. Um, What would shrewd stewardship look like for us as Christ followers? Because we've been entrusted with wealth that's not our own, meaning we are managers of money that ultimately belongs to God. How can we best use that money for the glory of God and the good of his kingdom? Well, Jesus gives three applications that flow out of this parable. Let's look at them. Uh, Three applications about being a shrewd steward of money. The first one is generosity. Generosity. Look at verse nine. You see it there in verse nine. Jesus said, and I tell you, this is right on the heels of the parable. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you. Those friends may receive you into the eternal dwellings, the eternal homes, the eternal houses. How do you make friends with yourself or for yourself with the use of money, by being generous. Everybody loves the generous guy. Everybody loves the generous girl, right? The dishonest manager made friends for himself through his use of money. He invested in future friendships. They were temporal friendships, but he invested in them. And Jesus is saying, how much more should my followers do the same thing only in an eternal sense? Like this verse is calling us to put our worldly wealth to work for eternal good, eternal purposes, to invest in what's gonna last forever, which is people, God and people. That's what lasts forever. And he's saying, use your money to make eternal friendships. And Jesus is saying, hey, you ought to do this with the same level of shrewdness, the same level of thoughtfulness that the dishonest manager used. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, I would say most of us probably put way more thought way more thought into our personal investment portfolios, into our personal career decisions, into our personal spending plans than we do into our giving. We put more thought into those things. We're usually more creative and more forward-thinking about our temporal investments than we are about our eternal investments. But Jesus is saying, hey, have some eternal foresight with your temporal wealth. In other words, be shrewd. How can we get an eternal bang for our buck? How can we make eternal friends for ourselves? How can we store up treasures 
for ourselves in heaven? And the answer is to be thoughtfully generous with our worldly wealth in a way that benefits people. Be thoughtfully generous with our worldly wealth in a way that benefits people. That can look like meeting the needs of people, widows, orphans, the poor, the vulnerable, the downcast. God cares about all those. That can look like investing and taking the gospel to people through campus ministries, through missionaries, through church planting. That can look like building the church, which is the household of God's people, the community where God's people are shepherded and sanctified. That can look like giving uh, to help liberate people from oppression, from slavery, from addiction. It can take all kinds of forms. Jesus also is not just talking about giving only money. Like the word he uses for wealth here is mammon, which we've talked about. It just means possessions, just means stuff. And he's saying, be generous with all your stuff, with all your resources, be generous in a way that people are cared for, people are loved, people encounter the gospel. And he's saying, those people will be your friends forever. They'll, they'll be your friends. For, they will say to you in eternity, thank you for investing thoughtfully and generously so that I might hear the gospel, so that I might experience the grace of God in all kinds of ways. We should give generously to eternal things because worldly wealth is going to fail us. Did you notice what Jesus said in verse nine? He said, not if your worldly wealth fails. He said, when it fails. Like there will come a time when our wealth will benefit us no longer. And a couple years ago, I sat in the room with my wife's 97-year-old grandfather during his last days of life. Last days of life, he had very little left. Listen, he had been a, an Air Force um, officer, pilot in World War II, he had been a successful businessman. He had been an investor. He was a very accomplished person. But do you know in those last few days, everything he had in the world left fit in that tiny little room that we were in. He had some money and some, some property that he was gonna will to family. But, every, everything, but that didn't do him any good because he's on his way out. He's leaving. He's moving on. And Jesus says, hey, your wealth will fail. You can't take it with you, so send it on ahead, is what he's saying. Send it on ahead. It's actually what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6 says that those of us who have wealth in this present age, which is all of us, what are we to do? We're to do good. We're to be rich in good works. We're to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future. Why? So that we may take hold of that which is truly life. Our generosity now pays dividends, has a great return in the future. That's what Jesus is saying. Generosity. Second application. Faithfulness. Look at verse 10. Second application for what it means to be a shrewd steward, faithfulness. Verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you who have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, the worldly wealth that you have, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, 
who will give you that which is your own? The way that we handle money is an indicator whether, of whether or not we are trustworthy to handle more important things. Like that's what Jesus is saying in verses 10 and 11. Because the way we handle money is a little window into our character. It's not the only window, but it's a window, right? And it doesn't matter how much money we have, is what he's saying. Like if I'm stingy with a little bit of money, then I'm gonna be stingy with a lot of money. I'm probably just stingy. If I cut corners and cheat when I have a little bit of money, then I'm probably gonna cut corners and cheat when I have a lot of money. If I'm wasteful with a little, then I'll be wasteful with a lot. Jesus says, if you haven't been faithful with your worldly wealth, then who's gonna entrust you with true riches? Now, what does it mean to be entrusted with true riches? What are these true riches? Well, it means to be entrusted with things that have spiritual value, eternal value, things that last. It means to be entrusted with kingdom responsibilities, things like the care of souls and serving the church and sharing the gospel. It's why whenever a church is going to hire a pastor or appoint an elder or a deacon or some other spiritual leader, uh, part of the vetting process should be to look at that person's financial practices. Like, how are they, how are they doing with their money? Because if they're reckless, if they're untrustworthy with money, do you really want that person overseeing the church or the spiritual lives of others? Like, if they can't manage their money, do you want them to manage the household of God? How we ha handle our money is an indicator of our faithfulness and our character. Now, Verse 12 is kind of a surprise. Look at verse 12. You would think that Jesus in verse 12 would say something like, if you've not been faithful in managing your own things, then who's gonna entrust you with somebody else's things? But that's not what he says. He reverses it. He says, if you've not been faithful in that which belongs to another, who will give you that which is your own? See what he's saying? If you're not faithful with that that belongs to another, who's gonna give you your own stuff? He wants us to know that all our money and all our stuff is not actually our money and our stuff. Like Jesus says it belongs to another. It belongs to God and we're merely managers of it. We're money managers. If you ever hire a money manager, one of the most important things to make sure of is that he or she is a fiduciary. A fiduciary is legally obligated to manage your money with your best interest in mind. The root word for fiduciary is the same root word as the word trustworthy or faithful, fide. That's what it means. A fiduciary is faithful. They can't just do whatever they want with your money. Why? Because it's your money and they're obligated to represent you faithfully. They can't say, you know what? I took some money out of your account so my family and I could go on vacation. Don't worry though, I'm gonna put it back in the account by the end of the year. They can't do that because it's your money. They represent you. God calls us to be fiduciaries with his money, faithful managers. That's actually good news, why? Because it frees us up to be generous. Like we can be open-handed with money for kingdom purposes because it all belongs to God anyway. We don't have to worry about it. 
This is why the New Testament's teaching about giving is not limited to the tithe, to giving 10%. The, the Old Testament talks about the tithe. The New Testament doesn't give us a number. That's because some of us maybe ought to, t- to, to give less than 10% right now because maybe we're just scraping by. Maybe we're just trying to make ends meet from paycheck to paycheck and to give 10% would make life untenable. But some of us probably ought to give way more than 10% because we have an abundance and to hold on to more and more is, is just evidence of covetousness and greed in, in, in our life. The New Testament doesn't tell us to tithe. What does it tell us to do? Give generously, give freely, give cheerfully. Why? Because we're managing God's money. It all belongs to him. Can you imagine being employed as a money manager and the client tells you, hey, you can keep 90% of my money for yourself. That's all you're, I'm just gonna live off the 10%. (laughs) That's what's happening when we tithe. God says, to, it's, it's good to be God's money manager because he lets us hold on to a lot of it and benefit from it, but he owns it. He owns all of it, not just what we choose to give. And that's what Jesus wants us to see here. So we ought to be looking for ways to give his money away for his glory. Just this morning, it's great. I read 1 Chronicles 29 because it's where I'm at in my reading plan. Listen to what King David and the people of God say. They're, the, the King David and God's people are, 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 are making offerings for the building of God's temple. And David is praying and David says to God in First Chronicles 29, verse 14, he says, but who am I, Lord? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Meaning we're just giving you, God, what already belongs to you. That's faithfulness in stewardship. Generosity, faithfulness. And lastly, the last application Jesus gives is devotion. Devotion. Look at verse 13. He says in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. A steward cannot be devoted to two masters at the same time. It's impossible. Like this verse describes money with lordship language, worship language. What what he's saying is either God is your Lord or money is your Lord. Mammon is the word he uses, That's, that's your Lord. Uh, Frederick Dale Bruner <clears throat> reads the verse like this. I think it, I like this, what he says. The verse is saying, you cannot possibly serve God and gain. <laughs> I love that. You can't possibly serve God and gain. And I love the idea of gain because it encompasses more than just money. Gain is the pursuit of everything that money can buy us, like comfort and esteem and security and status and stuff. And we're all tempted to bow down at the altar of gain. We're all tempted to worship it, to be devoted to it. And you don't have to have a lot of money for this to be true of you. Some of y'all are thinking, you know what? I've got like $23 in my checking account. I'm clearly not living for gain. But mammon, as the word he uses here, it doesn't mean affluence. It doesn't mean wealth. It just means stuff no matter how much stuff you got. So it's possible to have very little money and still give yourself to the pursuit of stuff. 
the question that Jesus is asking here is, what are you devoted to? What are you worshiping? And Jesus is saying that money is a terrible master, a terrible Lord, because money promises freedom, but it ends up enslaving us. Money is a ruthless master because it's always whispering in your ear. You don't have enough. You don't have enough. You need a little bit more. And no matter how much you have, it's, you don't have enough. Somebody said that wealth is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. Like, I can't understand, I'm drinking so much water, why am I so thirsty? That's how money can be, if it is our master. This is saying we cannot be devoted to both God and money. It's impossible. Not improbable, impossible. It's an either or thing, so you gotta choose. Which will I be devoted to? Will my stewardship be to God or will my stewardship be to worldly wealth? And we gotta choose. I wanna end with verses 14 and 15 because I think they're really important. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they heard all these things. So they're standing there, they heard the parable, they heard the application points, they heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. They're like, yeah, Jesus, whatever. Uh, they ridiculed Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. I think this is a warning for us because it's possible to listen to sermons on money. It's possible to read Jesus's teachings on money and to walk away justifying ourselves. Well, that's not me. He wasn't talking to me. I'm doing just fine when it comes to money. But I think God wants us to take an honest look at our hearts because he knows what's in our hearts. I think we need to ask ourselves, am I generous? Like really? With money? Like, am I faithful with what's been entrusted to me? No matter how much it is. All my resources. Am I devoted to God rather than devoted to gain, to, to money. We don't have to justify ourselves. We can be honest about it. We, the reason we don't have to justify ourselves is because we've already been justified by Jesus. Like he made us right with God through his death and his resurrection on our behalf. Second Corinthians chapter eight, we've mentioned this verse before. It says, for, through, for though Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He poured out everything, all his wealth, so that we who were poor could become rich. Here's what's incredible about this. Romans five said that when Jesus did that, when he poured himself out for us, we were enemies of God. We were enemies of God. Jesus gave away everything he had so that his enemies might become his friends, his eternal friends. He has made us his friends, forever friends. Why would we not serve him? He's so good. Let's thank him. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.